and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School China Conference 2022, the U.S.-China Economic Panel. And this year's conference is in partnership with Center for China and Globalization and the U.S.-China Exchange Foundation. Uh, I'm the moderator today, William Xue. I'm currently a graduate student and the co-chair of Great China Society here at Harvard Kennedy School. And today, we are very excited to have three distinguished panelists to join us. And uh, I'll give a very brief introduction of our three guests. The first uh, is Professor Jason Furman, the head professor of, prof of practice of economic policy at Harvard University. And he was the 28th chairman of Council of Economic Advisors from 2013 to 2017 and was also the President Obama's Chief, Chief Economist and a member of the Congress. The first and second, is we have Jason Professor Chen, the professor Director of, of Asia Global Institute and the Chair Professor of Finance and Victor and William Fong Professor in Economics. And he was the former Professor of Finance at Yale University from 1999 to 2017. And last but not least, we have our old friend, Dr. Wang Huiyao. Uh, he is the founder and president of Center for China and Globalization. And Dr. Wang is an advisor to the Chinese government and has been appointed as counselor for China State Council in 2015. So welcome. And for the agenda today, we will have around a 45 minutes panel discussion. And then we will open the floor to our audience for a Q&A. So if you have any question, please feel free to put your question into the chat box and our colleagues will monitor them accordingly. So without further ado, uh, let's get started. Um, I want to start uh, with trade. So since Trump administration started the trade war in 2018, the US trade deficit uh, with China has dropped around 15% from 418 billion in 2018 to uh, 355 billion in 2021. But the US trade deficit with the other parts of the world has actually rocketed 60% from 450 billion to 720 billion. So um, in terms of the uh, trade deal, China has uh, just uh, purchased only 57% of the total amounts that it committed to buy under the agreement. So considering all these factors, a lot of economists have uh, concluded that uh, the trade war uh, is a failure. So I want to start with Jason, uh, Professor Jason Furman. So what's your view on that? And what's your overview, overall uh, evaluation of the trade war? Great. Um, so it's uh, great to be doing this with you, uh, William. Um, I have the pleasure of advising you and a team of students on a really important research project, um, which has been one of the exciting things I've worked on um, here at the Harvard Kennedy School. And so I was very happy to do this as well. Um, I think there are major issues in US-China economic relations that are genuine and fundamental and important. I think there are some big issues with um, Chinese economic policy and the way in which it treats um, foreign investment and foreign trade. I think, though, that by and large, um, President Trump's trade war was a distraction from the real um, and serious issues. 
Um, I teach my students that when a country runs a trade deficit, it's almost always because of that country's domestic policies, not because of anything any foreign country is doing. Um, in the United States, our trade deficit is a function of the fact that we have a low level of private saving, a high government budget deficit, and that is combined with a reasonably high level of private investment in the economy. And when you combine all of those, you have to run a trade deficit with someone. It's no surprise that the US trade deficit rose over the last year because our budget deficit rose um, much more than was the case almost anywhere else. And that will almost inevitably lead to a rising overall um, trade deficit. I also teach my students not to look at bilateral trade balances with any given country as a measure of anything meaningful about that country. Um, it can be arbitrary based on you know, labeling um, and the like. So you know, I think the fundamental mistake, and we can get into what would have been a better way to go about it, is to make public policy focus on the bilateral trade balance and to do that policy unilaterally. Um, instead, I think the American approach to um, economic relations to China should be done in a more rules-based manner, in a more multilateral manner, and should have goals other than just trying to get China to buy more from the United States. That's great. So, uh, Professor Chen, what's your take on that? Yeah, I agree with uh, uh, Professor Furman um, on the uh, effectiveness of, uh, you know, trade sanction or not uh, trade sanctions of uh, uh, tariffs and and uh, and so on. Um, at a practical level, I would say, um, you know, the COVID uh, pandemic has uh, really saved China a lot uh, because otherwise, um, just by 2019, you know, the uh, Trump trade war was really starting to uh, show a lot of effect uh, with uh, so much, uh, you know, shifting or moving out of China of certain manufacturing uh, sectors to Vietnam, um, India, you know, um, and other countries or even Mexico. Uh, but then with COVID, um, it basically stopped um, whatever effect of the Trump trade war with China was having on uh, the shifting of uh, you know, manufacturing out of China. So, so in that sense, I, I, I think without the uh, COVID pandemic, um, the trade wars effects uh, may, may have, uh, would have been very different. Um, but in any case, I agree uh, with uh, Professor Furman that um, at the end of the day, you know, domestic policies in China and domestic policies in the U.S. Uh, have led to uh, you know the, the still pretty big uh, trade deficit the U.S. has uh, with China. Now with the geopolitical uh, changes, uh, you know, this new trade. Uh, that was started by the trade war uh, will probably uh, continue, uh, especially after the pandemic is over. Thank you, Professor Chen. Um, Dr. Wang. Yes, uh, uh, thank you, William. And uh, yeah, I, I share many uh, uh, observ observations of uh, Professor Foreman and uh, Professor Chen. Uh, but actually, I think that uh, 
the China-U.S. Uh, trade was really uh, beneficial on both sides. Uh, for example, uh, we see now U.S. inflation is running at uh, 7.5 now. It's uh, you know that that's very high, but but for a long time, you know, almost <laughs> since 80, so uh, you know that was basically uh, uh, two to three percent. I think there's a large number of quantities of uh, Chinese uh, uh, good quality, you know, uh, cheap product actually kept uh, that inflation low has actually contributed to that. But also, I think that uh, you know the trade that. Uh, uh, China now, as you mentioned, the number has, uh, uh, you know, maybe China has reduced a bit of a, a deficit for the U.S., but, but, but then, you know, all the, all the rest of the world is, is really gone up. You know, you can see that. I mean, uh, ASEAN, actually, since the trade war, ASEAN become the largest trading partner of China. So there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, China actually, uh, many, many uh, manufacturing has shifted, shifted to uh, ASEAN countries like uh, Vietnam or Indonesia or of Malaysia, so that, that actually that part of region has actually gone up their export to the United States. But also, I think that uh, you know the reason we haven't uh, uh, completely fulfilled that uh, uh, phase one is because uh, the pandemic also has a lot of impact on that. You know, we had the, uh, but I think on the agriculture side, China has largely, you know, probably break the record. It still uh, had a very good, uh, uh, very good, uh, you know, for for the U.S. Uh, 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 to uh, to buy from U.S. It's a great historical <laughs> probably record on that. And I was talking to a former American ambassador, Terry Bryce He was saying, uh, you know, basically the land in Ohio is, uh, you know, in, 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 in his state actually has, has gone up agriculturally because there's more uh, agricultural product to sell to China. So uh, uh, so so I think there's, uh, there's it's a complex situation. But also, on the other hand, there's a lot of trade that... Uh, uh, U.S. is in huge surplus that hasn't been calculated. For example, service side, you know, you, you, I mean, still we have a large chunk of a Chinese student going to the United States. You know, they contribute uh, a, a big amount of uh, uh, to the universities, and and also before the pandemic, we have a we have a three or four million Chinese tourists went to the United States. That is also a huge contributor. But of course, there's also service trade for for the service companies. So many of that has not been calculated. You know, the the, the pure concept of uh, 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 you know, President Trump's calculation, I think, was, wasn't really a, a correct one. And uh, I, that's why I agree with Jason that, uh, you know, there's many ways to, to look at that. Thank you, Dr. Wang. And I think we, all of the three uh, panelists have a basic consensus that uh, the trade war or the tariff war is not the ultimate solution for the trade imbalance between the U.S. and China. So, uh, Professor Furman, if you are in White House now, What's the suggestions that you will give to Biden administration about the trade relations with China? Um, do you think it's a good time to relieve some of the uh, tariffs gradually? And what's the political possibility for that? Yeah, I think now is a good time um, for the United States to reduce tariffs, if only for our own reasons, um, that we're combating um, inflation and a set of supply chain problems. I don't think that um, undoing the tariffs would make a huge difference in an inflation rate that is way, way above um, where we'd like it to be, but it would help. Um, I do, though, want to make sure um, that the message gets across clearly that I think there are issues um, with uh, not just the U.S.-China economic relationship, but the economic relationship that many countries around the world um, have with China. Um, Foreign companies are increasingly frustrated 
um, about the way they do business um, in China, some of the lack of um, transparency and disparate treatment around issues like regulation, um, antitrust, the protection of intellectual property, I think are all um, real and genuine issues. The question is, what's the best way to get at those issues? And I don't think it's, um, you know, buying more soybeans and Boeing jets are the solution to those problems. I think the solution to those problems are sort of working together to better fulfill um, both the letter um, and the spirit of a set of um, international agreements and of China, you know, continuing to take the steps um, that it has been taking, but have been somewhat more halting in some respects lately of reforming and ensuring that the market has, um, you know, a larger and larger role to play in the economy. Great. And just following on this question, um, Dr. Wang, so what do you think, like, what's the perspective from the Chinese side on the fair trade and how to address the some of the concerns, just as Professor Furman just mentioned, like the intellectual property protection and the industrial subsidy in China. Yes, I think that uh, uh, Professor Furman has uh, raised a, a very uh, interesting question. I think China has actually uh, has gone uh, uh, has has gone a long way already, and uh, to uh, to deal with those kind of uh, uh, challenges and uh, and complaints that uh, we, we 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 used to hear. Uh, for example, now China's uh, has set up a 21 uh, free, zone, free trade zone across the country. The, the negative list has been shortened again and again. And of course, also, I think uh, uh, China has uh, 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 passed a new uh, foreign investment law, which I think have a very strict uh, 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 you know, uh, penalties for violation of IPRs. And, uh, and also that uh, uh, China actually now uh, uh, fires more uh, patents and uh, have more the more more Chinese company actually concerned about uh, IPR probably not even less than the U.S. company now because China is the largest applicants uh, 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 you know patent applications in the world uh, uh, filing on that so so I think there's a, there's a huge interest for China to 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 bid by that. But I think there was, there was, I understand there was a lot of complaint coming from, uh, uh, you know, this, this kind of a JV arrangement. They say, oh, there's a forced joint venture. But, but that was actually allowed by WTO, uh, you know, when China joined WTO. So I think uh, when WTO gave assessment to, to the Chinese company, you know, performance, it was always, you know, more or less actually quite good, not, not, uh, not really a really big problem there. So, so I think what, what actually, uh, can be uh, done is that China will continue to do that to 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 improve on its uh, uh, IPR protection. Actually, China has specially set up <laughs> IPR core uh, in Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, and, and 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 many other places. So so that actually there is a statistic calculate that for all the, you know uh, lawsuit actually on IPR violations, eighty percent has won by multinationals, foreign multinationals. So you see, China actually has, has done quite well on that, but. But I, I agree, you know, it's always, uh, there's room to improve. There's uh, always uh, uh, work to be done. But in terms of subsidy, uh, that's also another thing. I think that, uh, you know, I think China has a really a great combination of, uh, of the mix of its economy. You know, they have about uh, 
you know, 60% private sector, there's another 25% probably uh, SOE, there's another 20% multinational. So it's, it's really a combination uh, that, uh, you know, government actually uh, rely on SOE to do many things. For example, leaving uh, 800 million people out of poverty was really largely done a lot by, by SOE, you know, probably providing some subsidy and some help, you know, even without profit. So many things are done like that. So there's a, there's a formula. I think China is probably, is probably developing a new a model of new uh, a world uh, that actually been doing well in China. But I think the, the matter is that if Chinese company going global, I agree that we need to uh, really follow the international practice. But I think in China, China should be open to uh, open competition for all other, you know, all, all, uh, all, all type of company including foreign companies. But, but right now, I think, you know, there are some subsidies for the Chinese company basically is you need to, for the public sector, there's those unprofitable sector, the, the, the really livelihood of the, of the you know, important, uh, you know, living standard in, in a country. So, so there's, there's, a, there's a point on the cons there. I think we need to make a, 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 a more accurate assessment. I think one, uh, as the KPI, you know, really China is doing quite well. For example, if China SOE is not there, we could not have the two thirds of the global speed railways. If SOE is not there, we could not have the uh, 5 million uh, 4G or 5G stations and all this great uh, uh, infrastructure. So, so there's a, there's a new uh, trend or there's new uh, things that, for example, COVID-19 con containment as well, uh, state uh, company played a lot of roles. So, so I think uh, we have to, of course, uh, the large chunk of that, provide employment, taxes, innovation, entrepreneurship, a lot is done by private sector. But I think China probably found the right formula, multinational, employs 20 million, 30 million people in China too, contribute the one third of the export. So it's great great to, to how to work out the right formula. Uh, China is doing a lot of experiments. Thank you, Dr. Watts, very, very insightful. And uh, Professor Chen, so what's your take on that? Yeah, I, I would like to uh, add that, uh, of course, uh, you know, the last uh, two decades, or, or especially, um, you know, since China joined the WTO, there has been a lot of progress in uh, enforcing intellectual property rights and so on. But I have to say, in order to really address uh, IPR and industrial subsidy issues, uh, a lot of uh, more fundamental reforms are needed uh, in China. Uh, well, the reason that uh, at local government levels, um, there's just not much incentive uh, to really enforce a lot of the uh, intellectual property uh, protection uh, rules and laws uh, because the local governments uh, you know have to uh, pay attention to the local uh, companies uh, needs their business needs uh, if they really enforce uh, you know the various well intentioned laws passed introduced by uh, experts and um, uh, officials in Beijing then they would lose a lot of local fiscal income and lose employment. You know, over the last uh, two decades, when I talked to um, mayors and party secretaries at local governments, they always point, uh, you know, their fiscal income source and employment uh, sources uh, for the local communities uh, as a reason for them to really 
look the other way uh, when it comes to uh, intellectual property protection. And this is also why uh, local governments and central governments often get very much uh, involved uh, to intervene uh, in various things through uh, subsidies for certain industries and so on. So what I'm trying to say is that you know, for China to really uh, uh, solve this problem, um, the government really should do reforms to really uh, implement uh, the third millennia, well, the, the third uh, plenum decisions of what now everybody forgot uh, about nine, uh, maybe nine years ago. Remember this uh, phrase that came out of that third plenum uh, that says, let the market play decisive roles, right? Uh, of course, you know, that uh, uh, session, which made uh, 60 points of uh, uh, reforms, uh, new agenda uh, after the 18th party Congress, uh, but none of, uh, almost none of the 60 uh, reform points has been really implemented. So if the, uh, if the government could actually uh, really leave uh, enforcement of rules and laws uh, to an independent judiciary uh, to really implement and enforce all those well-intentioned intellectual property laws and many other laws, then this uh, forever uh, ongoing complaint uh, from the US, Europe, and other countries would actually uh, stop. Uh, there would no longer be such a complaint if the judiciary in China could actually be left alone to do their work to enforce the laws. Uh, but we know that uh, in China, you know, nothing is independent, uh, including the, the court system and so on. So when that's the case, uh, we can complain and talk about how to change the intellectual property environment in China. And so we can continue this kind of discussion forever uh, without really seeing a real solution to this. Uh, of course, uh, industrial policies, uh, subsidies, uh, can be uh, addressed uh, in a very similar way. Because as long as the constitution says, you know, uh, whether it's uh, north, south, central, uh, uh, north, south, east, west, or central China, uh, the party decides and leads everything, right? So whenever that's the underlying fundamental principle, all those other issues cannot disappear uh, because the party has a say in everything, including intellectual property related uh, uh, cases. Uh, so instead of the law and the market uh, playing uh, decisive roles, right? So I think maybe um, uh, Henry, uh, maybe Dr. Wang uh, can, can work harder to push for the implementation of uh, those uh, 60 point uh, reform uh, plans uh, that now almost everyone has forgotten uh, uh, after uh, they were uh, passed, uh, you know, some nine years ago. I, I think we, we just have to <clears throat> go back to uh, address uh, the real fundamental uh, restructuring that's needed. Uh, otherwise, all those, all those other consequential uh, effects um, will not disappear. Thank you, Professor Chen, for a very balanced view, and we can see there's still a long way to go.
And uh, now I want to shift a little bit uh, to the financial market. So um, in the past five years, we can see a clear trend uh, of US-China decoupling in political arena. But if we look at the US investment in China, it actually has increased gradually in the past few years. And for example, some uh, US investment banks like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, they are even like granted uh, the full ownership of the joint venture uh, securities firm in China. So what do you think uh, about this divergence between politics and business? And to what extent the geopolitical uncertainties between the US and China will have impact to the investment uh, environment in China in the long run? So I want to start uh, with Professor Furman. Yeah, I mean, there's the, I mean, you refer to geopolitical. Um, so we should talk about um, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, which is just a flagrant violation of every international rule that has kept the world, you know, a less dangerous place over the last um, 70 years. And um, the other thing is China, uh, Russia is just, Russia is a very small part of the global economy. Um, it's important for certain um, natural resources, some of which are very important for China, which does, which is not rich in natural resources, um, but is is very rich in the ability to and need to use them. Um, but beyond that, Russia is very unimportant, and so I do think there is a risk to China if it decides that it's going to, you know, align itself with Russia rather than aligning itself with um, the United States, Europe. Japan, Singapore, Australia, and you know the part of the world global economy that is much larger, um, much more innovative, um, much more important. Um, I think that you know there have been um, pushes and ideas that there need to be you know more deglobalization, um, concerns about um, you know some of the resemblance between. Um, you know, China's expansion uh, militarily within um, its own neighborhood and what you've seen from Russia. Um, I hope that's not true. I don't think that that's true. But um, confusion and misperception um, about the truth of it um, could lead to some um, acceleration of deglobalization. So I think that um, peace, that respecting borders, that not solving conflicts through, um, you know, th through, you know, uh, taking sovereign and democratic countries and uh, trying to solve them militarily in that context has, you know, was the main way things were done for decades, um, served the global economy well. And I very much hope and expect that um, the United States and China can deepen on their economic relations and that they're not threatened by you know, trying to form an alternative block of countries or you know, doing um, anything resembling the types of things that you know, Russia is doing now. Um, and again, I don't think that's going to happen, um, but you know, just wanted to reinforce the importance of it not happening. Yeah, so back to the question, like, what's your view on the divergence of the US politics and uh, you know, the business world towards China, like the differential trajectory? Um, 
There's some divergence, but I, you know, I, I talked, you know, the, I talked to a lot of uh, business leaders in the United States, and they were happier doing business in China, um, you know, five to ten years ago than they are now. I don't think any business is ever going to want to de-link um, from China, just like I don't think China is ever going to want to, you know, make its economy entirely uh, move it entirely in the domestic direction that you know president she the direction that president she would like to move it in but um you know I, I think there's both a need to be in china it's a, such a big important economy it's such a um you know and an increasingly innovative um part of the global economy that uh we can learn from um and that our businesses learn from the uh, ideas don't just flow one way anymore the way they did maybe a few decades ago but that's combined with a set of discontent and a desire to reshore more and um, deglobalize. So you hear that from, you know, not just from governments, but from companies too. Okay, great. So Dr. Wang, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think that, uh, yeah, I think the world is getting really, uh, there's a huge deglobalization, you know, push on that. I mean, the, the 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 you know this crisis in Ukraine and uh, you know Russian uh, you know this operation in, in Ukraine is really you know caused, caused great worldwide attention. I, I think China actually uh, has taken a quite uh, uh, you know a very a clear uh, uh, stand that uh, they, they disagree with, uh, with the sovereignty violation and they disagree with those. Uh, uh, you know, that uh, uh, conflict or war and things like that. And the President Xi has said they would like to work with, uh, uh, you know, international community to, to stop the, the crisis there and, uh, and the, the war actually in, so, so in, in Ukraine. I think that, that stand is very clear. I think there's a little difference is that uh, uh, in terms of the, the, the massive sanction there, you know, because I think uh, the, the Chinese felt the sanction in the past uh, probably never worked well, but also you can bring down the world economy and, and recession into that. So, so that's something I think that that's the, the problem I see as the only difference. But other than that, I think China has made it clear they are not supporting Russia and they are not uh, providing any uh, military or economic uh, uh, assistance uh, like, 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 like U.S., uh, some people, official U.S. may, may think. So, so I think that's, that's, that's uh, already quite clear, a stand there already. And, uh, uh, what I think actually, uh, the, 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 this kind of a, a deglobalization and, and what has happened is really not just, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the Russian is, is, is pushing on now this time <laughs> through the military front. But, but actually, uh, we see the world is, uh, is getting a, a bit, uh, 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 you know, and, and uh, more secured uh, alliance. Actually, U.S. is pushing, for example, you know, U.S. as NATO, you have uh, uh, you know, Five Eyes, you have, uh, uh, now you have AUKUS, you have a Quad, you have, uh, you know, all those uh, military alliances. I think the approach China is having is really a little different now. China is really pursuing, for example, Belt and Road is made an economic uh, alliance, and then the China is, uh, you know, uh, joined the CP, uh, uh, RCEP, uh, you know, trying to join CPTPP and uh, trying to join DEPA, and uh, has built the AIB, and also has also you know, now is uh, uh, signed an uh, investment treaty uh, kind with European countries. So, so Chinese projects really are trying to work on economically, also with uh, with African countries uh, and and many other countries too. 
So what I think, you know, the the the, the problem we are now is that we should we should again we, we did New Britain with movement now we didn't really like like the like 19 you know, Second World War finished that we had the World Bank WTO IMF all those things coming up. We should probably strengthen the economic alliance, you know, which China is doing uh, now, rather than we are all forming the military, uh, you know, uh, groups or alliance, and then that is really making danger. Uh, finally, I would like to say, I think in order to solve these deglobalization issues that we really have to, every country probably should concentrate on, on its own challenges. For example, I mean, what we're seeing in the US now, 1% of the Wall Street probably represent 40 or 50% of the massive you know, wealth of the population. So the middle class in the last 30 years has seen their income, you know, uh, in, uh, has gone up in, in zero, you know, almost. So, so that is really the challenge that, uh, uh, and then if, 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 if they are having this kind of situation, they'll vote uh, the politician out of the Midwest or rust the bell. Definitely they're going to take a uh, you know, big chunk on China as a scapegoat. So, uh, so, so there's, a, there's a problem where I think every domestic country has to solve uh, rather than uh, put that into, into the uh, other country to, to blame. But I think what uh, President Biden is doing now is great now. He, he's actually proposing at the G7 now, G20 has adopted an internet, you know, global, you know, corporate flag tax, which is great. I think that is really important. So the multinational make money overseas uh, no longer has to put it uh, in a tax haven now. They can put it money back to the U.S., benefiting the Rusty Belt, Midwest, so that they don't really take in China as a as a, as a van, <laughs> van their, uh, vent their angers and, uh, you know, blame China for all the problems. Of course, China has a problem too, but, uh, but I think, you know, we have to take some time, maybe five, 10 years or 15 years, to get a new new understanding of each other, and then maybe we can calm down some of those uh, uh, negative sentiment in those countries. Thank you, Dr. Wang. And Professor Chen, what's your view on that? Yeah, I, I think uh, Henry has summarized uh, China's official line pretty well, so I, I, I don't need to repeat any of that. But let me emphasize uh, the challenge and uh, you know the Russian war uh, actions, uh, implications, uh, not just uh, for the world economy, but in particular uh, for the Chinese economy. I think after many years uh, you know, of um, seeing China practice uh, politics first, uh, rather than economy first in international affairs, whereas um, <clears throat> Americans and, and, and also Germans uh, practice uh, a totally different uh, asymmetric strategy of uh, you know, profits or economy uh, business first and uh, politics uh, last. So now two sides have more or less converged to uh, the China model that is putting politics above everything else. I have been you know, talking to different uh, friends uh, on, on both sides uh, for so many years, I, I just thought uh, at least, especially for the last 10 years, uh, politics is always the top priority uh, for Chinese uh, policy making. Um, but many American friends uh, don't uh, see that. Like, how can you not put profits and business uh, first? Uh, but I think now the two sides have converged. But, but I think over the last one month, uh, a lot of uh, fundamental changes um, uh, have been uh, introduced uh, so with very, very uh, long-term implications 
Of course, there are many, many things we can talk about, uh, but I can just give a couple of examples. Uh, for example, um, the, um, the very financial foundation of globalization uh, has been totally shaken up uh, this time of the last uh, one month. Uh, you know, remember, uh, as a finance uh, professor, I would say we always say that uh, foreign exchange reserves um, uh, being held by other central banks uh, should be taken as, a, as the most secure asset uh, that every country and any country can rely on. But now with uh, you know, assets held uh, in, in, in the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank and so on uh, being frozen, uh, I, as part of the sanctions, uh, which I which I agree, I, I I think regardless of how historically the sanctions uh, have been proven uh, to be in terms of their effectiveness, uh, uh, even as a gesture um, out of uh, humanitarian considerations, uh, they should be uh, actions such as sanctions uh, to be taken. But having said that, um, for this time with um, assets uh, of one country's central bank uh, being sort of parked uh, with other central banks uh, that can be uh, used as uh, uh, tools uh, for sanctions. So now, uh, not just uh, the People's Bank of China, but also the Royal Bank of India and all other central banks have to re-examine uh, how they can actually manage uh, their foreign exchange reserves and uh, how they can, of course, some of them may buy more gold and so on, but uh, no matter what uh, they, they actually do, uh, especially for countries like China with 3 trillion US dollars of foreign exchange reserves, where can China put that money, uh, put that money? Uh, there's no way uh, uh, you know, to go back to uh, just uh, holding all phys uh, physical uh, metals as reserves, especially the physical metals don't really have that much uh, liquidity. Uh, so, so, so that foundation is being uh, uh, totally, uh, you know, shaken up uh, to say, to say the least. Uh, what will be the new? Um, financial foundation for globalization, I, I don't know. So every country, every player is trying to figure out uh, the new normal. So maybe for most countries, uh, one conclusion they should take from this is that, you know, you have to support and work uh, constructively to um, establish and maintain a, a workable uh, international order for globalization rather than trying to uh, play a very destructive role because playing a destructive role is not good for, for, for any economy, especially for economies like uh, China's because China depends so much on international trade. Uh, so I, I, I think the lesson should be clear uh, to all the countries that uh, instead of trying to uh, be destructive uh, in the international order, uh, maintenance and reconstruction, uh, rather, they should take the opposite approach, that is, play more, uh, play their roles more constructively. Uh, and then um, speaking, of, my, my, my second example is, uh, as uh, Professor Furman just mentioned, 
they, they are a lot of cross investments uh, by American companies in China and then by Chinese companies in the US, uh, you know, even putting aside yeah, the, the uh, foreign exchange reserve management. So now this time, um, actually two weeks ago, we already saw uh, those Chinese companies like uh, Alibaba and many others that are listed in the US or even uh, on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, uh, they were taken down uh, in valuation uh, by 50% or 80% or in many cases, 90%. So that just, that just shows that um, the new sanctions uh, of uh, seizing Russian assets right, have sent very, very strong signals uh, to American uh, business uh, executives and American investors, as well as uh, Chinese uh, business executives that, uh, you know, no big uh, uh, foreign trade dependent, foreign investment heavy uh, country can really go um, in crazy ways uh, on the international stage by invading peaceful societies and so on, because the consequences can be very, very big. So I, I, I think this challenge, uh, of course, is still too early because uh, since the, the first day of invasion, you know, it's barely uh, uh, over just uh, one month. Uh, but I think the, the resetting um, of foreign investment in China and foreign investment in the US will take some time, uh, but uh, decoupling and deglobalization uh, is a trend uh, that, that no one can actually uh, reverse, uh, unfortunately. Uh, so given that, I think um, not only there will be a lot of challenges for the global economy, uh, but also more particularly for the Chinese economy, this, uh, these are the kind of challenges. Uh, I don't know how uh, the leaders in Beijing will, will be able to address. Uh, so maybe without getting into details, I mean, going back to the 60-point reforms, uh, that's one of the steps uh, the Chinese government can take to address this. And then secondly, and work uh, very cooperatively uh, with international leaders uh, to try to make all those multinational uh, organizations uh, more effective and play a more constructive role uh, rather than making them really uh, as dysfunctional as possible. So I think uh, China has a lot uh, at stake and uh, it is in China's best interest uh, to uh, stay with uh, Deng Xiaoping and, and uh, especially uh, my uh, Hunanese uh, um, uh, country, uh, well, uh, uh, fellow Zhu uh, Rongji, uh, when he was the premier, you know, he was uh, pushing for the WTOs uh, and, and China getting into the WTO and many other things. I, I think we, if we go back to that kind of mindset, uh, China can really, uh, you know, maintain the growth momentum uh, that China has had for the last 40 years. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Chen. Professor Berman, do you have any comments to add? Um, I mean, there's so much uh, that's been uh, brought up by everyone in this discussion, which has been um, terrific. I think 
and, and, and I'm looking forward to the questions that we get to. Um, I, I think fundamentally, I agree with a lot of what's said that um, I, I think AIIB, for example, is terrific. I'm not afraid of Belt Road at all. Um, I think it can play a constructive role in some countries. I think in some cases, um, you know, the, the terms of the loans and the like aren't as desirable to the countries, but those are, um, those are all, you know, issues for China to work out with other countries. I think increased, you know, global economic engagement is really important. I think there's some issues the countries deal with on their own. Uh, U.S. inequality was brought up. I think that's an issue in the United States. Um, that's an issue that President Biden is has taken some steps to address and will be taking more steps to um, address. And um, I think a lot of what, you know, I heard in terms of you know, the way China's dealing with international economic um, engagement was very um, encouraging and positive, and I was, I was glad to hear it. Thank you. And I think it's time to uh, open the floor to for, for our audience for Q&A. And um, one of the questions we got is about the China concept stocks uh, delisting risk in the U.S. So um, basically, I worked in the financial market before, and I'm always joking with my friend that the most dangerous, uh, you know, job in the past year is maybe the fund manager, uh, you know, who managed the portfolio of China Cossack stocks listing in the U.S. So uh, earlier this month, the SEC announced first five Chinese companies at risk of delisting if they don't comply with U.S. auditing rules by 2024. So uh, our question is like, what's the possible cooperation of the regulators between the two countries to solve this uh, problem, and what's the real risk of that? So I want to start with uh, Dr. Wang. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, uh, William. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I found this is really, uh, that's something I think Chinese are getting a little bit uh, more and more uh, worried and also uh, annoyed as well, because uh, you know, almost every week we, without goes by, there's a, a negative news from U.S. that how many companies has been on the sanction list, how many has been on the watching list. You know, there's totally almost uh, uh, 700 of them. You know, it's incredible. I mean, <laughs> 700 almost Chinese company on some kind of uh, entity list or, or watchful list on the U.S. But just imagine, you know, uh, China actually passed the anti- uh, foreign sanction and law, actually, and uh, but then you don't see China actually imposed any uh, sanctions on U.S. companies. I mean, there's a there's a there, since China opened up, there's a, uh, you know there's a seventy thousand some all kinds of U.S. company has been set up in China. They make a seven hundred billion revenue in China. You know, China has hasn't started anything uh, sanctioned on them. No, not at all. I mean, there's only one or two probably close cases. Is that uh, there's two company of U.S. selling weapons to Taiwan like Lockheed or, or Raytheon, but they are not doing much business in China anyway. China maybe expressed dissatisfaction on that. So, so I think it's not really a, a hot, healthy sign because uh, we're we are in the 21st century. We really need a, a, a really a more economic project. We need a new you know post pandemic and post uh, Iran war, a, a Ukraine war. We need. A, 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 a new Marshall Plan or, or a Belt and Road Plan to really boost the global economy. 
and that we need the China US work together. And I think that is really important. One of the things I think does provide some good perspective, for example, is the, uh, you know, China has uh, done its infrastructure, now the most advanced in the world now. And then US is also, you know, thinking in a similar way, uh, President Biden proposed 1.2 trillion, you know, infrastructure plan and build back better three, <laughs> 3W, you know, build B3Ws. And the European has proposed, uh, you know, a global gateway, 300 billion euros. So why not we actually, I was talking to Larry Summers, he's really uh, also quite, uh, Share the similar view that we should boost the world uh, infrastructure, like in, like to really boost up World Bank, AIB, ADB, AFDB. Let's get all the developed banks to work together, rather than we sanction each other, particularly sanction China, which has really caused a lot of geopolitical tension. And then eventually, you know, we don't want to follow this you know path of Russian, but uh, but but if China pushed to to Russian more closely, I mean that's probably the U.S. has a lot of to 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 get credit for that. So I hope that, you know, we, we should really have this two largest economy, and as President Xi said, we have a responsibility to see the world in a better shape rather than we put it into recession. So, so that's my uh, comment. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Wang. And Professor Chen, I know you are definitely an expert in the financial market. So what do you think about the risk of delisting of Chinese stocks from the U.S. exchange? Yeah, I think the um, the the uh, listing uh, uh, concerns based on uh, accounting rules um, and access to uh, the financial data uh, data and and documents uh, by U.S. regulators. I think that uh, issue is more or less resolved um, <clears throat> because just as I expected uh, before. Uh, the CSRC and the Chinese, Chinese government would have to make some concession uh, in this area because there are too many leading Chinese companies uh, that are listed uh, in the U.S. that have benefited from uh, the access, uh, you know, to the U.S. capital markets. But China just uh, could not have afforded to see actual delisting uh, to take place across the board. Uh, but on the other hand, I, I'm not as optimistic um, about the uh, future uh, state uh, or status of those Chinese companies listed in the U.S. Because as long as the geopolitical um, tensions uh, keep rising uh, between the two countries, it's just a matter of time and uh, a matter of uh, some creativity uh, for some American politicians uh, to find some other ways. Uh, for example, when I saw that, uh, when I saw the news uh, last, oh, about 10 days ago, that uh, the Chinese CSRC will cooperate with the S American SEC uh, to make the delisting, uh, uh, you know, the, the accounting uh, uh, issue uh, resolved. As soon as I read that news, I thought, well, you know, Mark Rubio is not going to let China walk away uh, with this. So he's going to find, uh, he and others will find other areas uh, 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 to uh, make a continuing uh, listing of Chinese companies in the U.S. Um, more difficult. Uh, so what I'm trying to say is that, you know, if we go back to uh, the previous Cold War, you know, in between 
the two blocks, the Warsaw Pact uh, block and then the NATO uh, uh, countries, there was no uh, uh, trade between them, uh, or, uh, and also there was not much investment between them. But now for China, you know, the access uh, to the U.S. capital markets is so fundamentally important, uh, actually, for, for the last 10 years, as much as I uh, would not want to see it's a real decoupling to take place between the two countries. And many people were, were, were thinking that, uh, you know, there is actually uh, a very serious uh, tech war between China and the U.S. So to me, I always thought that if the U.S. would want to win this war, it would be very easy just to totally cut access uh, to American capital markets uh, by the Chinese technology companies, which of course I don't want to see, but if the American politicians want to achieve uh, a, a win uh, in this uh, technology war, then cutting off access would just uh, take away a lot of the entrepreneurial uh, and uh, innovative uh, energy in the Chinese tech industries. Because as a finance professor, I actually I've spent a lot of years uh, trying to uh, examine sort of the, the important energizing roles uh, by access to capital markets uh, for technological innovations. Uh, you know, the very, you know, the, we don't have a lot of time to go through this, but uh, if we look at what industries are the most innovative and most energetic in China, it is those industries that have access uh, to international capital markets that attract a lot of the venture capital investments. Um, and then you wonder why would the venture capital investments uh, be mostly interested in those industries that have easy access uh, to international capital markets? Well, because those venture capital managers know the exit option is there for those uh, uh, startups uh, in industries that have easy access to international capital. So, so if you follow that logic, then you see that uh, you know once the exit option is gone uh, because of the lack of access to international capital markets, then venture capital will no longer be interested in funding uh, uh, you know start, uh, startups in those technology industries. Uh, so the, what I'm trying to say is that you know for China and the U.S., both countries rely on. Uh, free flow uh, of capital and goods uh, across national borders uh, as, uh, you know, protected by uh, the trade and investment friendly international order. So if any country tries to do away with that international order, that's, that's going to lead to uh, a discontinuation of uh, the kind of uh, um, innovative uh, energy and entrepreneurial energy that we have seen in China, uh, just like that, what we have seen in Silicon Valley in the US. Yeah. So that's really much more in China's interest uh, by working uh, together with other countries. Thank you, Professor Chen. So Professor Furman, what's your view on that from the US perspective? Um, I confess I have actually followed this issue less closely um, than uh, my friends on the Zoom call, so I don't have a lot to add to the discussion 
um, that we had, except um, share their um, enthusiasm for the importance of you know, the internationalization of um, capital and investment. Okay, no problem. So um, I think we are coming to the end of the, the panel. So I want to like close with a question also from our audience. So what's your expectations, your hopes, and your concerns of the US-China economic you know, cooperation going forward? So maybe uh, every panelist will you know, have like one minute or like several sentences to, to conclude your view. I want to start uh, with Professor Furman. Um, so I'm hopeful about um, the U.S.-China economic relationship. I know there are people on both sides that um, support delinkage and deglobalization, but the benefits of the relationship are so large to both countries that I think um, delinkage is basically impossible. And so the right attitude to take is how to make the best of the inevitable language. And I think there are a lot of good things that can be made from it, but they'll um, require you know, steps by China um, and steps by the United States, and hopefully no longer being distracted by the bilateral trade balance that we began this discussion with. Thank you, Professor. Um, Dr. Wang. Yes, I, I think that, uh, uh, you know, as uh, Zhuwu was mentioning, we're not living in the Cold War era that uh, we don't have much, too much trade in between. Now we are, you know, heavily intertwined, U.S. and China, you know, so China is also having, having created the largest middle class in the world, you know, probably have 500 million in a few years' time. So, so I think there's a lot of things we can work together as, uh, uh, you know, Chinese uh, uh, has been proposing. I, what, what I think the biggest advantage now, I mean, we have to find the, uh, consensus to work. And uh, right now, I mean, we are having this uh, pandemic, which is plaguing the world economy for the last two years now. And then we have this, uh, you know, Ukraine uh, crisis going on. So I think post uh, post uh, pandemic and post Ukraine crisis, there'll be a huge, uh, you know, infrastructure transformation for the world. And China is already on, on, on this leading position in, the, uh, in terms of infrastructure. So but the U.S. has realized that, European has realized that, that developing countries are badly in need of that. So why can't we really, uh, you know, stir up this uh, global uh, infrastructure uh, revolution that uh, let's have a new global plan for the, for the post those uh, uh, terrible uh, crises we're having now, so that at least we have a big pie to work with each other, uh, interest to work with each other, so that we, we, we concentrate a bit more of, of the benefit rather than we're getting into the negative of the geopolitical uh, downward spiral. So, so I'm really thinking of we need to have some urgent uh, uh, work to do that to revive the global economy and prosperity. That's the best way to avoid the war, the Third World War, which I think is so successfully avoiding so far, but is actually breaking down. So we need to really re boost our, our global uh, alliance on the development and the cooperation. Thank you, Dr. Wang. And Professor Chen. Yeah, I think uh, both uh, uh, Jason and uh, Henry um, have done a good job uh, playing uh, a diplomatic role, trying to be uh, optimistic. Uh, so that's good. Uh, since both of them have expressed their uh, optimism, so let me be a practical uh, person. Uh, as much as I would not want to see the, the world uh, as it is, uh, 
rather uh, you know I would see I would like to see a much more cooperative uh, trade friendly and with every player every business focusing on just working together to make more money because of the last 40 years uh, you know as I have been traveling between China and the US uh, before the pandemic at least four or five times each year I, I, for many years, I just could not believe that uh, everybody was able to ignore politics and, uh, and values, just try to cooperate to make more money together. Uh, so money was uh, the main uh, or the only objective. But unfortunately, now that's no longer the case, not only with the pandemic, but also the uh, Russian war in Ukraine. Uh, the world is very different. So no, no businessman can really ignore uh, politics or especially geopolitics anymore. Uh, so that's why with the impact from the pandemic, forcing every country to look for more self-dependence, uh, 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 for more independence economically and trade-wise, but also with the geopolitics, you know. Um, so wh whether we like it or not, uh, every country will try to uh, decouple to some extent uh, or as much as they can uh, from their dependence on imports from China and their dependence um, on capital from the US and so on. So this is why we are really in a very, we're no longer just entering a challenging phase uh, in world history. We are in the middle of it already. So. So every country has to work hard, uh, try to protect its own interests and, uh, you know, to the extent they can. Uh, but at the same time, uh, every country has a responsibility to really work constructively uh, with other countries rather than uh, counterproductively uh, to uh, maintain uh, as much as we can, uh, you know, the trade-friendly international order. Um, so that's the only way to go. Um, otherwise, uh, we would go back to, uh, you know, uh, the old bad days. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Chen. And thank you uh, for all our three panelists. And it's such a fascinating and balanced discussion today. And I really wish we have another hour to get deeper into all these topics. Um, so we have a very fruitful discussion today from the new ways to deal with U.S.-China trade, the impact of, of geopolitical um, risk to the financial market, and the challenge of globalization. And I wish our audience uh, have very enjoyed this uh, discussion. So thank you again, and take care, and goodbye. Bye.